Welcome to the podcast Studio Staying, Inspiring Leadership. I learned in my life the importance of being inspired by others and to be surrounded by people who bring you new insights and perspectives. That is the way to grow as a leader and human being in challenging and changing times. In these podcast series, I bring you the latest innovations on personal development and leadership told from business managers, CEOs, spiritual leaders, and people who live their true story. So now who is James? It is a question that he has pondered on in India for four days and 18 hours. And the only answer at the end of that exploration was a blank page. That is the true self aspect of me, James says. Yet of course, in real life, whatever that might be, James studied at the Cambridge University, traveled the whole world for many years on a personal quest, learning the school of life. At the age of 33, he finally decided he wanted more stability and started to work as a coach and facilitator, giving workshops and training both trainings, both in organizations and in open formats to enhance transformation and chance for a better world with more pleasure. He's the founder of Quings, an international consultancy agency, and he's a master in meditation, host of the podcast Spirituality for Today and co-founder of a very exciting project, as we said, The Crossing. So James, very honored and very pleased uh, to have you in my show today. We have known each other uh, for a couple of years now, and um, I'm really pleased to be here. And it would be nice for the listener to t- if you could tell us a little bit more about your personal background and how a British fellow ended up at his 50s or 60s uh, or 70s. And you, look, you still look very young, so I cannot put an, an, an H on your face, uh, James. How did you end up in Belgium? Um, thank you, Stein, and thanks for inviting me on your show. And um, I mean, one or two things, you did a beautiful um, intro on me. I mean, I don't know if I'd call myself a master in meditation. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, anyway, that's, that's another point. Um, Belgium, how did I get to Belgium? Well, I got to Belgium from Holland. So in some ways, the question is, how did I get to Holland? (laughs) I was living in a spiritual community in the south of France, and one of my friends and my partner at that time was Anya Hubert. And we wanted to start a business together in coaching facilitation. And she was Dutch. She had two young kids that she wanted to go back to Holland. And so we had to start somewhere, and we started in Holland. And Anya and I still work together 25 years later in Quinks. She's one of the other partners. And, uh, but our first client was in Belgium. Mm. And that client had the name of Colrout. So we, we kind of hit lucky there. And um, we knew nothing. I hardly knew anything about Belgium, let alone Colrout. Mm. But we ended up trooping over to Halle. And um, that was our first big client. And then it slowly grew, but I realized coming to Belgium, I preferred it here to Holland. It suited me much better, so I moved. And then I met Mickey, my wife, um, soon after moving here. And, you know, the rest is history. So in terms of the stability that I looked for when I was 33, it was partly in work, career, if you want to use that word, 
but also through family and nest and marriage and all the things that I had not had the previous, um, you know, 10 to 15 years with the lifestyle that I'd chosen. Why did you choose that lifestyle? You have been traveling all over the world, and what, what, was, what was it that you were looking for? Well, you know, choose is a big word. No, I choose. what happens to me is I've, in my life, I've always known what the next step was. So even if I just knew the next step is to go to that country. Um, and I just, I just felt the wind of change. I'd never put work first. I just got any jobs teaching, basically, when I was traveling. Um, which supported me fine, but I didn't, it wasn't the sort of core of my life. And, and really, I think the big change was thinking, yeah, what I really want to do, focus on work now. Um, so it, I just felt that something shifting in me. So it wasn't like I had lots of choices and I choose that one. It was just a move, all the big decisions in my life have happened that way. I feel the movement inside me that is very strong, and I choose to follow that. One of the topics in our podcast is about the unique self. Would you describe it for yourself as this continuously listening to what's happening inside of you? Or how would you describe that unique self? Well, that's very much part of finding your unique self is listening to all the different voices inside you and the different feelings and needs and so on and the like I said feeling the change of wind and you know my my teacher spiritual teacher for a long time Michael Barnett said there's always a deepest voice And that's the one you have to find. Because there's a lot of voices. In We're not a, a unitary I. <laughs> you know, we have many eyes. It's like when people ask me, how, how are you, James? Sometimes I find it really difficult to answer. I say, well, which, which part of me do you want to talk to? I might feel great as a father. And I might feel really down as a friend, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And both these things can happen at the same time. We, it's a mistake to think we really have a genuinely unified self. And the blank page that, that, we, that you mentioned? Well, so that's the other part of unique self. So part of unique self is connecting to your deepest voice. Let's use that language or soul, or whatever, the highest part of yourself, the deepest values, but whatever you want to call it. But the, the other part, unique self, is partly your individual story through life. So Seinstein's story with his biography, both individual, social, with all its pathology and <laughs> gifts, and, you know, we all, we all have that. So that's part of your way to unique self, is your unique story. But unique self is also informed by what the Buddhists call true self. And true self is the blank canvas. 
So in a way, you've got the movie of your life, which is the personal side. And when I say movie, I don't say that in a dismissive way, which the true self people sometimes do, actually. Not at all. It's deeply precious. But we're not just our story. You know, if our story is a painting, we're also the canvas on which the story is painted. So we, or from a consciousness point of view, we are the, the field of consciousness in which this little self called James happens. And we're both, it's not either or. How, how would you discover in your own painting of life, you know, if you, you, you make the picture of your uh, unique self as the painting and the true self is the canvas, Can we ever find out the true self when it is painted? You mean, can we ever see the canvas underneath the paint? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, you know, like all analogies, they, they fall down somewhere. <laughs> you know? I thought of that one on the spot. But um, as soon as you really start homing in on true self, and really trying to understand it or explain it, mm. you can't. Mm. So there will always be something utterly immediate and right here and certain about true self and utterly elusive. Mm. Because it's very difficult to understand. Yeah. So, so even a metaphor like canvas is useful because it, it points us in a certain direction. But a canvas is a thing, and true self is not a thing. So we can only use things to describe it. That's what language is. But it is beyond language. Is it for you more des describable when you use emotion or feeling? How, how Have you felt a true self? Not even that, I'm afraid. No, it's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's Is it an insight, a belief? <laughs> it's not a belief. I mean, you can build beliefs around it uh -huh. at your peril. <laughs> it's No, it's a realization. Okay. It's a realization. It's just something you wake up to, true self. And it's only ever now. It's the, it's the, as I heard one teacher say recently, it's the always already. It's the water we swim in. But again, water is a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> you see, well, we can only use metaphor. Poetry gets a bit closer to it. Um, no, but it's not a feeling. It can lead to certain feelings. That realization can sometimes lead to feelings of, of, of joy, ecstasy, bliss, and, and so on. Um, it can even lead to feelings of uh, pain because you, part of that realization is that everything is one. You know, that's the cliche. It's all one, and I get it, it is. But of course, when it's all one, you, you feel connected to everything. And there's a lot of pain in the world, which then 
you realize, oh, that's my pain too. I mean, one of the most beautiful um, descriptions of enlightenment I've ever heard was by a Zen Buddhist, enlightenment as in true self. And he said, and this is one my friend and colleague Mark Gaffney uses a lot too, is enlightenment is intimacy with all things. So there's nothing, when you're in that space, in that realization, whatever we're going to call it, you feel utterly intimate with that chair. Everything. And everything becomes more vivid and alive. So, if we come... Well, thank you. It's, it's, it, that's a beautiful uh, f metaphor or phrase to, to say the true self is in connection and intimacy with everything around us and even a stone or, or a chair or I was this morning with somebody who has left her who left her house who moved out and she was so sad about her house but she had the image that it was just stones and so she was still feeling very very sad about leaving her old house because she did not see how connected she was with the old house And after she had that realization, uh, it is not just a stone. Yeah. It's, it's part of her story. Yeah. It's part of her story. Mm. Now, of course, the, the actual realization of intimacy of all things is not an emotion. Mm. Emotions can get triggered. Yeah. Emotions are our sort of personal engagement in life. That's how I see the role of emotion. Emotion is a way of perceiving life. It, sh it shows us what we value, what we care about, you see. She feels sad. Why do you feel sad? Because she values this building and the role it's played in her, her life. When we get angry, it shows something is valuable to us or afraid. Beautiful. And... You know, we were talking about um, the leaders of the future. And that was, how do you say that it is important to discover, or what is a, a, a leader of the future, and why is it important that we find our unique self as leaders of the future? The leaders who really get followed, if we use that leader follower paradigm are the ones who found something of their uniqueness mm. you know you're never gonna be a great leader just by following the sort of you know leadership handbook or the social norms on how to be a leader you know it's got some of your your color your own color in it that's that's in a way what charisma is, I think. Charisma points to uniqueness. Um, so uniqueness is very important for the leader of the future, to, to find someone's own authentic way of being and leading in the world. But that's also connected to, you know, and this is what we'll be looking at in The Crossing, but You know, the language I use is there's, there's growing up, waking up, and showing up. Mm -hmm. So growing up is all the psychological work we need to do. 
with our historical self, healing the wounds, working through the sh all the stuff. You know what I mean? Going through, going through the armor. So from homo armor to homo amor, the step is growing up mm. and learning to be vulnerable and learning to, to be connected to yourself and your feelings and so on. All, all the work that we are familiar with. But there's also, for the uniqueness, I'm not saying there are many leaders who have this, but there's also the connection to the true self, mm. which is waking up. And then what all great leaders have is the showing up. Showing up is, you know, having the courage to stick your neck out. So all these great leaders, they, 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 they have moments where it takes great courage to risk, risk all sorts of things. Um, and you get that on a micro level and on a, on a macro level. So that showing up thing is, is really important. How, how would you say, what, what's, you have a lot of experience with, with, with leaders and managers and, and, and CEOs. What are for you the key, the key elements of the moment that now you need to show up? What, what is the most, most common or most seen blockage or, or barrier that people don't show up? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. What's the most common blockage? I think just various forms of fear, of shame, fear of rejection, fear of not being loved, um, Fear of being vulnerable. You know, there's, there's the, well, one needs to show up on many different levels. And of course, vulnerability is a notoriously difficult quality for leaders because traditionally it's associated with weakness. And it still is in many cultures. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, you don't often see... Vladimir Putin get out the Kleenex and uh, saying what a hard time he's having because he feels the whole world's against him. But my guess is there's underneath there's a lot of vulnerability, but it's no way he's going to show it. Alas. How, how, how would you describe vulnerability? Because I, I sometimes feel it's, it's not quite well captured by my society. What it is, it is like you say, this... Uh, associated with with weakness, with crying and just being a poor victim, and yeah, yeah. but what is it actually? Well, I would go to the literal meaning of the the Latin. Vulnus means a wound. So vulnerability is being able to access, or in our case, to um, express where we are wounded, where we hurt. So I would, I mean, there are many forms of vulnerability, but I would still say that's at the core of it mm. or, or express where we feel unsure. It's that extra level of transparency about things inside ourselves, which we feel ashamed of, 
guilty about, afraid of, and so on. I think that's how how I see it. So is that um, if you know what your wounds are and you have been growing to heal them, um, what is for you a good way to show up with them? Because nowadays you see a lot of people uh, sharing all their stories of their wounds and going very deep into it. I suppose it's something different that you mean with the showing up of your vulnerability. So can you... Um, can you describe that a little bit more? How you can show your wound and use it as something for growth and for inspiration? Well, a big problem with the sort of... Um, I don't know what to call it. The Oprah Winfrey form of vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> and, and telling your whole life story, everything that's going wrong. Of course that has a place. Yeah. But... You know, we also have to take responsibility for our experience in life mm. and our feelings. So I think too often the expressions of vulnerability are connected to a certain sort of victimhood mm. where it's very quickly spills into, well, it's everybody else's fault. Yeah. And I'm very suspicious of that. I'm not saying there aren't genuine victims. Of course there are. We're all ge genuine victims of something. But somewhere we've also got to take responsibility. You know, it's me, it's my story. You know, it's like with our parents. We can go on blaming them forever, but it's not necessarily going to enable us to grow up. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think vulnerability is, a, for me, it's a more here and now thing. Um, you know, how many times have I said to a leader, and this, I mean, this is really ABC, I think, for you and your listeners, but how many times have I, do I know a leader is having some self-doubts? You know, he doesn't have to tell his whole life story to his direxi, you know, how his mother dropped him from the pram when he was two years old. You don't have to do that. But in the here and now, If he's feeling unsure about the future, you know, it might be a good idea to express that. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I think it's it's more like that. Or or make it or for another leader, it would be the vulnerability might be very different, is that he might never be uh, afraid of conflict. So his his vulnerability might be to dare to challenge somebody. So it is more of um, showing up of the vulnerability of the now, what you what is going on now in your body, how you yes. you feel, uh, how you feel at that very moment towards a certain situation or towards other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and even then, I'm not saying it should always happen. Mm. But you, as a leader, you need to at least have that option. And sometimes it's appropriate to show vulnerability and sometimes it's not. Yeah. There's no rule, you know. But for a lot of them, they don't really have a choice because they're too scared. So even as a facilitator, that I'm a kind of leader, mm -hmm. there are times where it would be very appropriate to share my vulnerability. And there are other times when it won't. Same as a parent. 
how do you make that decision to share something or not about your vulnerability? I'll give you an example. We uh, did you come to the organization of the future day about safety? Uh, yeah, that I, I, I remember that you did a, a, a very brave sharing about what happened with you that night. Yeah, and actually that was about my history of poor me as a child and abusive school. So, you know, there I'm already contradicting myself. Sometimes it is relevant to share that. But um, so this is how I knew that day. The morning, you know, we've got to go and perform in front of 100, 150 people, whatever it is. And the morning I wake up, I feel absolutely terrible. And I felt bad during the night as well. And I felt really emotional. And the theme is safety. And I realized, my God, I am not feeling safe going into the work. So there was some what we call parallel process going on. There's theme of safety out there, but theme of safety in here is also playing. And usually I would expect that to go away once the people start coming. But it didn't. And 10 minutes before we started... I was in the toilet crying and it wouldn't go away. So I realized it's not meant to go away. So that's where the little step of courage is needed to say, right, this is meaningful what I'm feeling. Tear up your agenda, what you thought you were going to say, and just say what's going on. Do you see, that's the here and now bit I'm speaking of. And of course, it turned out that it was exactly the right thing to say because it made everybody feel safe. It did, and it's beautiful how you, how you described that um, you thought it was going away and maybe there was a part in you that, said, that wanted it to go away. And... <laughs> And usually when you fight it, it even comes back harder. I know. And, and some, some, sometimes it's really just washed away. Mm. So I don't need to do anything about it. It's washed away by the energy of the context. Yeah. But it wasn't. Mm. I could still feel it. I thought, this has to come out. Mm. Again, it's that deepest voice. Yeah. I was thought, there was a deeper voice than the voice saying, oh my God, I can't work today. The deepest voice said, this is part of the process. That was your unique self talking? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. It certainly had my flavor. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and my story mm. and my qualities. And yes, I think, I think that was my unique self. Because our unique self is... It is in no way reducible to our pathology, you know, the wounds from our past, but it is connected to it. So our uniqueness is connected to our history, both individually as James or Stein, but also collectively. So my, my unique self has some flavor also of my social history. I'm British, you know, so I've had to work through all the sort of stiff upper lip stuff and uh, all that. <laughs> so would you say leaders of the future 
it's like a voyage or a quest to find that deepest voice so you can truly be an inspiration for others as well yeah, yeah definitely that principle of the deepest voice is vital to a leadership but even with decisions on you know whether to buy a new company <laughs> you still need your deepest voice it's the same or choosing a partner or or, or recruiting or, or or whatever and i'm not saying the deepest the deepest voice is has a very intuitive side but it's not divorced from the mind You know, it's very different. When you really look into it, you know, when we're working with people, it, it helps us to divide things into mental, emotional, energetic, physical. But really, it's all one thing happening at the same time. It's just helpful sometimes to tease out those things. But they're all connected. Would you say, uh, you talked earlier about uh, going from homo armor to homo amor, is when you are at that spot of the unique self, of your deepest voice, that you are the homo amor? I would say that's one of the qualities of homo amor, is that mm-hmm. contact, contact with and trust mm-hmm. in the deepest voice. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit about, uh, more about... What is this homo armor? What, what does it contain? And what, what's the evolution that you see as, as we as human beings to, uh, to this homo armor that is part of finding your deepest voice? But there is, I'm sure there's a lot more to it. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I mean, really, so homo, you know, the crossing is the transition from homo sapiens to homo amor. Mm. That's what it's all about is creating some technology, some social technology to facilitate that transition from Homo sapiens to Homo amor. Now, part of Homo sapiens is Homo amor. Because in order to survive all the slings and arrows and difficulties of life, Homo amor has developed an armor A harness. Um, we all do. You know, that's, that, that's what a lot of the therapeutic work is all about. Even animals, traumatized animals, you will see they develop a certain armor. So a dog that has been abused won't just let themselves immediately be touched. Do you see what I mean? So it's part of, clearly part of our evolutionary background that we we have coping strategies, animals too. But it get, it's much more sophisticated in human beings because human beings can reflect about themselves in ways which... So Homo sapiens, the whole point of Homo sapiens is he can reflect, she can reflect on herself. And this is a huge shift. And as soon as you can reflect on yourself, you know, neocortex, etc., you know, suddenly... Hey, you you know, I can look back on my childhood and a, a, a very difficult school time I had in a way that a dog can't, yeah. as far as we know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, the home armor, uh, it's the shells and, and the harness and everything around it. We, the evolution is to, to 
take that away, to break that down? Um, to reduce its control over us. So, you know, the bad news is your wounds never get totally healed. Not in my experience. Mine haven't been, and I haven't seen them totally healed in anyone else. And I'm pretty damn sure if I met Gotama the Buddha, I'd still see a few wounds, scars around. <laughs> yes, it would, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so we, but the point is a lot of the wounds and the armor is unconscious. So that's the whole point of, of growing up work, is that we're making it more conscious so it has less unconscious control over us and our behavior. So someone who's really stuck in their armor, their harness, doesn't know that it's a harness. They think they're just being normal. Yeah. You see, it, it just happened recently in this apartment building. This, this guy just freaked out and just got completely angry about a pretty um, non-essential thing, <laughs> as happens, of course, <laughs> when people live near each other. A really great guy who, who's very helpful in many ways in the building. But he, he just lost it with this incident. And he, when challenged a little bit about it, he said, well, that's just the way I am. When I get angry, I get really angry. So he doesn't see it as that's some trauma or something from the past. That's just the way I am, you see. And so, and he's not probably not very interested in growing up work, especially now he's a pensioneer. And I, I don't know, but do you see what I mean? So that's, but that, ang that, dis that level of disproportionate anger doesn't come from nowhere. No. And it's, you see, it's, it's, that's how we know that there is a wound that we get over-triggered by a particular circumstance. Why is it that you, th that you, that for in, in this case or many other cases that people prefer to keep on their armor rather than going to that homo, place of homo amor? Um... I think, again, it's the fear of the vulnerability that it would cause. Um, you know, once you start digging around inside your psyche, it can all get a bit messy and painful. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the, the nicest place to be. <laughs> not always, <laughs> no. Um, I think that's the main reason and there's some sort of basic... I don't know, sort of status quo conservative force in us, which is not altogether bad. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying everyone ought to do this. Yeah. You know, I, I think some of us are called on to do it and some of us aren't. Mm. And the, but I don't, what I am saying is that if you're a leader, I do think you have certain responsibilities, ethical responsibilities to look at yourself because you have a lot of impact. You know, the impact of this neighbor in the building is limited. But if you're in charge of a company, uh, you know, with a few hundred people or whatever, 
then, or a politician, or whatever it may be, I think there's a moral responsibility to look at your shit. Because otherwise, it will get dumped on people. For me, that's part of, if you choose a high-status job like that, if you choose, if you're ambitious, you want to lead people, that comes with the territory. Yeah. Is there, um, according to your opinion, a lack of leaders that uh, that go into that self-reflection and taking their real uh, moral authority of themselves? Totally. Oh my! And it, it, it's it's actually getting um, it, this. There's a particular wave, sort of since the Trump era, where it's positively discouraged. Really. Like, you just deny everything. <laughs> I mean, it's quite extraordinary. <laughs> it is. It's, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm that. Uh, it's, it's just really popular now, these so-called strong leaders, yee-haw, whose one of their main principles is never show any vulnerability and never show any attempt at self-reflection. Even self-reflection is considered weakness in their worldview, and some of the f people who follow them. No, I think there's some terrible leadership around these days. I'm not, I'm not saying it's worse um, than in history. I'm just saying there's a particular wave at the moment, which has come with a, an in increased sort of hostile rhetoric within the political and leadership sphere. What do you see as your contribution and with the work that you do and with, with um, the, the big event that uh, the crossing will be in Holland in these challenging times to make that change? What, what, what is your contribution to that? I think there's two. Or, or what could our contribution be and, and leaders' contribution? Well, the first thing is we all need to turn we need to turn into homo amor. So the most important for me, thing for me doing this project, The Crossing, is that I model homo amor. You know, be the change that you want to bring in the world. That's, we all, we all have heard that a million times, yeah. but it's true. Now, that's not enough. It's going to need my, all my skills as a facilitator and a designer of experiences and as a meaning maker. So it's, I've never had a project, I don't think, that involves quite in such a way every single part of me. That's what it's demanding. It's got to have depth, it's got to be transformational, but it's also got to have a, a kind of a slightly wild side, celebratory side, which is very much me. And it's got to have total depth of silence, meditation, which is also me. And it has an intellectual component, which is also me. So all of it is going to be asked for. That's why, personally, I'm so excited about it, not just because of the po positive effect of it, but in terms of unique self, I can't think of any project that is, has most potential to express all the different parts of myself. What do you want, or what, what do you want to achieve with, with the crossing for, um, 
the transformation or what, what is it that you want, want to bring out to people? So we want to create two things, a transformative experience, mm -hmm. okay, which is what I'm always trying to do in my work is create, whether it's with leaders or all of what I do is hoping to create transformative learning, a transformative experience. But the crossing, and this is the big thing I've learned through, through Mark Gaffney over the last years, is that an experience itself is not enough. Too much of the self-development spiritual work is aimed at creating transformative experience. But it transformative experience without a guidance system, some kind of guiding story, some kind of guiding frame of where are we really trying to go to is nice, but it's not enough. We need, that's why it's called the crossing from Homo sapiens to Homo amor. That is the guidance system. And within that, there's a lot more substance in the story, the philosophy, the cosmology, and, and so on. But it's not just the experience. And that's a bit my fear with the modern spiritual world, is that people just jump from one beautiful experience to another. And there's no real direction. There's a vague direction, which is felt subjectively, You know, this is the advantage. This is what we've lost in a way because we don't like big spiritual gurus anymore. And there's good reason for that. Mm. But in a way, the good thing about the old-fashioned spiritual teacher was he said, right, trust me and I'm going to take you from A to B to C. Mm. Now, because of the problems of such a sort of Uh, rigid, if you like, hierarchy, which we all know about, we've kind of thrown that out the window. Yeah. But what we've got now is a supermarket. Yeah. And you just, just pick, what you, pick what you want. But where's, where is the real meta-level guidance system? So people will go straight from ayahuasca weekends to NLP weekends to... Um, you know, so, something shamanistic to something psychological, but where is the real guidance system? And I see this all that happen, time. For me, the crossing, part of my intention is to bring a little bit of order and direction okay. to the modern spiritual world. You know, which you have in the traditional spiritual world, in the religious world, you can argue it with it as much as you like and the problems with the church and we, we all know that. And at least they had a real guiding story. Yeah. That guiding story of Christianity brought together millions of people throughout history who were gathered together with a kind of fairly common purpose. That's something. Now, we've thrown that Many of us in the developed world have thrown that away because we've seen the problems of having too dogmatic a story and da-da-da-da-da-da, we, we get that. But what is there now? It's a bit of a free-for-all, huh?
So we will have a new story. A new story. Yeah, that's Mark's department. <laughs> But I mean, the, the the guiding system that you that you describe so beautifully that we have thrown away, is that the intention of creating something new? Yes. So we. We want people to have a transformative experience, but we also want to get a story out there, a language, a cultural meme out into society. And this is one of the best vehicles we can think of. And books and podcasts can, are other vehicles, of course. Even, you know, we're hoping for 400 people, but it's still only 400 people. But we want the whole thing to spread from country to country and, you know, we're ridiculously ambitious. So why should I go? Because, uh, uh, or as a leader, I can imagine that some, if you talk about this transformational experience, they're like, ooh, that's, that's scary. Uh, transformational experience as, as somebody who has never done something. Why should they still go? <laughs> Because it's you? <laughs> well, I have to admit, with quite a lot of people, I just say, trust me. <laughs> Which may not be a good argument, I don't know. Um, you know, who knows how we make that sort of decision? I think if someone is scared to do it, you know, that's not always a reason for not doing it. <laughs> And I think the other thing is, what I really want to make clear about the crossing is that the, our main purpose for doing it is to address the problems in the world. Yeah. So if you come to the crossing, you're not just contributing to your own personal transformation, which you are. The whole point is it's for the transformation of the whole. That's why we want something large scale. So it doesn't matter if you've already had a lot of experience in transformative learning, in self-development, in spiritual methodologies. This is has a explicit social purpose. I love that. I think that is the most, I would say it's very important that it's not only about you as an individual person inquiring, but you contribute to a to a much larger uh, extent or, or, or space. Exactly. And for me, to be honest, personal work purely for its, purely for its own stake is going to go out of fashion. Yeah. It's had its time. It came out of the 60s. It came, all of this, all of these workshops, they came out of the 60s where it said, you know, tune in and drop out. Drop out of society. That was the message of the 60s. Create your own little world. Which was needed, I think it was a good movement. And all these workshops that you and I do came out of this then. There weren't loads of workshops back in the 50s around self-reflection and stuff. Not at all. But there's been this sort of That's given that modern spiritual world, self-development and the, and the human potential movement, it's given it a slightly otherworldly side to it. And I think we're coming back now and realizing, no, we have to integrate in society. That's why I always say we position ourselves on the edge of mainstream. I don't want to be in the totally alternative world. I don't feel at home there anymore. 
I love that. It is, it is back to a, th a thing, probably what we lost a little bit due to Corona, to this community, to society, and to not only be an individual, but being yeah. one in a group. Right, and being a, a burger, yeah. you know, a civilian. Mm. We're part of a... And you can say, oh, I don't... You know, I don't, I'm not interested in politics. I don't have anything to do with it. Yes, you do. You use the roads. You use all the whole system. You, you, you pay tax. You, you, we, we, you cannot divorce yourself from the political. Yeah, you sort of, if you go and live in a cave the other side of the world, but even there, mm. politics would probably find you. But you see, when in the spiritual world I grew up in, you know, politics was just a dirty word. That's, oh my God, that's what you leave behind. We're non-political. But there's a, a real illusion in that. So, so it is not only finding your true unique self, but also where you, you place your unique, unique self in society. Yes. So one of the, the commitments of Homo Amor is showing up wherever you are and um, extending your the the scope of your action now that doesn't mean i'm not saying by that you know you have to go work in in congo or central african republic or 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 syria or wherever it or ukraine or wherever it may be yeah that might be great But there's some way homo amor has to somehow get beyond their own immediate tribe yeah. with their heart, their circle of care and compassion. has to go beyond just you, your family, and your organization, or your bunch of friends. Otherwise, how, how can we possibly tackle all the pr problems in the world? It's got to go beyond our tribe. Beautiful. And well, we're almost coming to the end of the, of the podcast. Um, but I love the way that you, that, that, that you describe the, the event or the evolution of finding your unique self and placing it in society and creating your tribe and finding your place in, in, in the world. Um, I think it's much needed. Uh, I think it's completely needed. None of the big problems, you know, that's nuclear weapons, AI, climate, um, pandemics. I mean, it's ridiculous to think we can solve those problems just from one tribe. Like, you can solve climate change just through Belgian policy. I mean, it's not going to work, is it? So we have to... That's, but that's the whole point, is that these crises that, as Marx says, crisis is an evolutionary driver. Mm. That is how evolution works, and has worked for millions of years. It's not just a human thing. You see it on a sort of molecular, molecular level. He can explain it much better than me. But these are the crises we need. Mm. Is climate, is, in a way, is perfect, to work out how to get beyond your own tribe. So let's get out there and see what we can contribute to that and how we can find our way to change a little bit or to make it better. Yeah, exactly. And, and everyone has their own 
thing they can do, their own unique gift. And it doesn't have to be something spectacular, but it does involve some kind of stretch. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? It, 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 there's, there, there is some kind of courage needed or even sacrifice. So for me to do the crossing, I have to sacrifice various other things which I don't have time for or give me more money. But the crossing's so important for me, it's not actually not difficult to make that sacrifice. Great, great, great. When is it? When is it, uh, James? April 25th to 28th, 2024. The website is up, the crossing punt Bay A, and the ticketing is nearly ready. You know, we've had a few uh, growing pains behind the scenes, um, but it's coming good. And I just so want everyone to come, anyone who's worked with me or Mark or heard about it or vaguely interested. And one, the last thing I want to say is that There's an area which I'm particularly interested in from a facilitator's point of view in my development as a facilitator is this, the power of large scale. Yeah. So there's something about having three or four hundred people in a room, you, I'm sure you felt it, mm. like doing the breathing in um, the organization yeah. of the future, that you create a field. Yeah. And that field... You know, you, you feel some of that if you go to a music festival or a, or a football match. Of course you do. And that field can go very bad. We all, we all know, you know, historical incidences like in, in football matches. And it can be amazing. Because you just get this. It's like you're no longer just sort of doing the work yourself. You use the work, the energy of the whole field to propel you into, you know, transformative experience, into ecstatic experience, into collective, collective mourning, rao. But it has so much more power. And so in that sense, it doesn't matter how many things you've done before, you won't have done them with this scale of group. It's like I'm already there, James. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I know, me too. I can't wait. I'm nervous as hell about it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, James, for your uh, inspiration for this beautiful talk and for all the effort that you put in uh, making this event happen. Thank you, Stein, for inviting me. It's been a, such a pleasure to... Um, Yeah, I, I think, especially with the crossing, I have all this need to express. Yeah, you feel that you, 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 you get an other energy when we get to that topic. Yes, yes, and you're giving me a chance to express that. People will soon get very sick of me expressing it, I'm sure. <laughs> well, anyway, so thank you, James. Thank you very much. And also thank you, dear listener, uh, for... Um, listening to Studio Stain again with James Bamfield this time. And if you want to listen more podcasts, you can just push uh, the follow button and then you will receive every new episode. Thank you very much.
especially with the crossing, I have all this need to express. Yeah, you, feel, you feel it, you, 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 become, you get an other energy when we get to that topic. Yes, yes, and you're giving me a chance to express that. People will soon get very sick of me expressing it, I'm sure. <laughs> well, anyway, so thank you, James. Thank you very much. And also thank you, dear listener, uh, for... Um, listening to Studio Stand again with James Bamfield this time. And if you want to listen more podcasts, you can just push uh, the follow button and then you will receive every new episode. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Studio Stain. If you want more inspiration, just go to my website studiostain.com or go to the Spotify website iTunes on Inspirational Leadership. You can also share this podcast with others who might benefit from listening to these inspirational talks. Thank you very much, great people.